Clinker Factor, the cement industry podcast. Welcome to The Clinker Factor, a podcast from WCA, which looks at the cement industry's response to climate change around the world and other topics of interest. I'm Ian Riley, CEO of WCA, and your host on The Clinker Factor. Today, I'm talking to Apov Sina, founder and CEO of Carbon Upcycling Technologies. Uh, Apov was recently recognized with the prestigious Top 35 Under 35 Award from the Canadian Clean 50 organization for his groundbreaking work in carbon utilization. Apov, welcome. Uh, Perhaps we could start with you giving us a short introduction uh, of yourself and how you came to set up Carbon Upcycling. Hi, Ian. Thanks for for having me. Great to be a part of this podcast. I've I've heard a few of your episodes and obviously I've known you for a period of time now. I began working at Carbon Upcycling uh, when we founded in 2014, primarily looking at ways of mineralizing carbon emissions into solid products. Uh, We're a Canadian company headquartered in Calgary, but now have operations in Europe as well as in the U.S., but at the time, really, our, our main focus was carbon-based nanomaterial production. We weren't really looking at cement or cementitious materials at the time. Uh, so it's been quite an evolution over the last eight and a half uh, years or so to get to where we are. But, you know, I'm a chemical engineer by training, and it's definitely kept a lot of that, that chemistry piece of my, my education in play. And I've, I've enjoyed uh, learning a lot about both the challenges as well as the opportunities that the building material industry generally has to face over the next 10 years or so. So, so you've scaled the business from starting with lab scale, uh, I guess, a few grams up to your, you know, pilot scale that you've got now. What, what have been the, the the biggest challenges that you've encountered uh, during that time? Well, they, they've really been kind of different stages of evolution. Uh, I'm also a young dad, so I I think about you know a, a, the different stages of parenting as well as just a parallel. But yeah, I think at the the early stage, Ian. I would say from 2014 all the way up to probably 2018, a huge amount of our work was engaging with a lot of uh, research partners. So universities that had characterization data, that had expertise in specific areas such as polymer chemistry or nanomaterial characterization or cement chemistry increasingly as we got towards 2018 or 19. And I would say at the time, the challenges weren't really um, related to many of the things that we we consider challenges now. At the time, it was a much more open-ended kind of research project as you might do if you had a, a very forgiving and and uh, nice supervisor for a PhD. Uh, you know, you had a bit of money, you could you weren't constricted to look at only one angle because you know you, you had funding to kind of look at whatever you wanted. And as long as you could uh, make a compelling enough case, you could look at it. So I would say as we went from you know a cookie jar reactor that was doing, as you mentioned, two to three grounds at a time, you know, dealing with local machine shops and, and pressure vessel shops and stuff to, to get that done was relatively straightforward uh, compared to some of the complexities now of trying to work with large uh, multinational companies and, and looking at deploying things, you know, with their operating teams in, in different um, regions of the world. However, it was it was exciting in the sense that for the first four and a half years of carbon upcycling's kind of existence, we weren't really sure about where the product market fit was for the tech. It was almost like a a solution looking for a problem to solve. And um, one of the big North kind of stars for us was where can we get sequestration potential of CO2 that really makes a meaningful difference. And primarily for carbon-based materials, we, we were able to get some incredibly exciting numbers. I mean, we were seeing that we could sequester 100 kilograms of CO2, 100 to 250 kilograms of CO2 per ton of 
carbon that we process. So what I mean by that is uh, not carbon from the CO2 gas, but carbon as in like graphitic carbon or amorphous coal, uh, which we could activate to actually get carbon to sequester CO2. And this was quite interesting. What we ended up finding was, you know, most of these applications were very niche and, and just not large volume enough to really make uh, millions or hundreds of millions or gigatons of impact. And so the scale-up piece, I think, became really real for us as we competed in the Carbon X Prize competition. We did that starting in 2018 where we go into the semifinals with a few other companies that you've hosted on your podcast and essentially realized that, you know, there is, if, if we can keep the costs low and, and come up with a scheme that isn't overly intensive from a capital standpoint, there is a an opportunity in the, the building material space and specifically around supplementary cementitious materials, which is, you know, has, has become kind of the core focus of the company in the last three or four years. So maybe you could introduce the technology and, and how it works so that our listeners can get a, a basic understanding of, of what we're talking about here. Absolutely. Yeah. So from day one, I think we were kind of hesitant to get into wet carbonation in its normal form. So if you look at literature across across the board, most of the focus has been on aqueous carbonation, any materials that have, you know, high pH. So obviously in the case of cement, like we we talk about anything that has calcium oxides or calcium silicates that we can uh, look to carbonate. And generally, uh, I would say by and large, the heavy majority of approaches involve wetting the material, uh, injecting CO2 in and putting it into some kind of an autoclave or some kind of a, a curing chamber. Our premise when we started in October 2014, at least at the lab scale, was to look at how can we carbonate or add CO2 to graphite to make uh, single air graphene. One of the things about all carbon chemistry is you want to keep it away from water. Like the only solvents that you can really use are oil-based or water repelling uh, solvents, which tend to be very expensive. And our whole kind of premise that we got a little bit of money from the provincial government in Alberta, Canada for was a dry, low energy process to make nanomaterials that could go into, you know, a range of applications. And in true kind of North American startup mode, we we kind of oversold without having, you know, a bunch of, of evidence to prove that we could make what we thought we could make. But to, I think to our credit as an organization, we were able to make single air graphene oxide that we continue to test for a couple of really neat applications like in 3D printed plastics and a couple of polymer applications that, that could even have some medicinal kind of applications. But by and large, I guess to answer your question about the core tech, the idea was how do you take a powder and chemically activate it while you're breaking it down? So you're starting with something that's a few hundred microns. Most of the graphite that we started with was, you know, about 10 times the size of, of a cement particle. So a 300 to 600 microns. And we would grind it down in the presence of the right chemistry so that it would actually absorb CO2. And what we found was that it would actually functionally change how the graphite slash fuel air graphene interacted with uh, within a composite or in a certain use application. And so really what we've done in the last four years is translated that understanding of carbon-based nanomaterials and getting them to sequester or chemically absorb CO2 to cementitious materials or materials that are calci calcium and magnesium rich, or, or at least have some considerable components of that, and, and use that in those materials. And primarily what we found is that because many of these industrial byproducts or even some of these uh, natural minerals that we've tested, because they have so many impurities, the only way that we could get this ready for 
you know, of, uh, for a, an industry that is willing to live with that kind of stuff is is basically the building materials industry. And so it was in 2018 that we started pivoting towards that. And in the last, I would say, two and a half years, we built a pretty solid portfolio of about 14 patents uh, to really cover how this works for different families of materials, ranging from, you know, industrial glass waste to slags to fly ash, which has been a core focus of ours being where we are in the in the, the world. And yeah, I think overall, it's been a great learning curve. And there's a lot more that we still need to do for sure. But it's it's been a steady start so far. So if I could summarize that, then uh, you've identified a range of materials, including traditional SEMs like uh, GGBS and Flyash, but also including materials that are not used uh, as SEMs or not usually used as SEMs like uh, waste glass, uh, steel slag, clays, uh, various other things. And and by uh, treating these with, with a mixture of mechanical activation and uh, CO2, uh, sequestration of CO2, you're able to uh, activate the materials so they may more effective SEMs. Is that, is that a rough summary? Yeah, much more succinct than my <laughs> summary. But yeah, exactly right. So you have a couple of um, commercial projects that you're working on on now. I mean, what, what can you tell us about those? Yeah, it, it, it's been quite exciting, Ian, because I would say it was about two, two and a half years ago that we really began to understand the, the latter part of what you mentioned, which is not looking at the staple SEMs that are already around, but rather at alternative materials, which currently have issues for adoption in the space. And so that includes materials like off-spec ashes, uh, steel slags that are currently not able to be used as they are, as well as, you know, certain natural pozzolans and volcanic ashes as well. And so really what's been quite gratifying is, you know, we were funded almost entirely by a couple of angels and Canadian government kind of support for the majority of our life. It was about two years ago that we started to look at the venture capital route and really started to explore the product market fit. And with the two most engaged partners, uh, namely Samex and CRH, we've been able to identify two specific plant locations, one in the UK, one in Eastern Canada, where we have gone away from our core work on fly ash, which was kind of our, our major technical focus till about two years ago. And in one case, we're looking at an industrial waste glass. And in the other case, we're looking at a a type of slag from the steel industry. And in both of these cases, again, going back to what we just discussed about the technology, really what has resonated with them is that this is a dry, semi-dry process that can be integrated right at the cement plant instead of needing to be, you know, scaled down for a ready mix or a precast plant downstream. And so the fact that they can plumb the CO2 directly into our system, it can sit right by their kilns, has been a, a key factor of attraction, I think, for for what we propose. And in each case, really, the premise is that when you're a multinational cement company with, you know, different supply chains in every every different location, a, a solution, you know, quite, I think, ironically, to scale needs to be able to, to really work at the micro scale, um, because you're not going to be able to get the same feedstock in every location. And so if you cannot build in some level of optionality, and it does not have to be, you know, radical in the sense that, you know, you don't have to take whatever is available, but, but you need to have some level of, I guess, choice. And really our intent over the next year and a half with the Series A fundraise that we just finished earlier this summer is to use the resources that we now have and the team that we're building to demonstrate that we can take these two family of materials and create a cementitious product that they can put right into their finishing mill or send the STM directly to a ready mix site that might be able to do the blending. And if we can show that and we can show that we can do 20, 30% clinker factor reduction with our SEM, really our thinking is that that could open up a range of options 
and allow these companies to be very competitive with price as, as you mentioned, you know, materials like fly ash and GGPS become less and less available and as a result become more pricey and, and costly to, to attain. Yeah, so I think this is a, a couple of very good points that you raised there. Uh, well, one, of course, is the point of additionality. And a lot of um, a lot of contractors in the UK, when they talk about low carbon concrete, they're really thinking about using slag. And of course, the slag is already uh, used in, in Europe. So it's uh, a case of if one contract uses more slag, another one is using less slag. So it's not really helping the overall global position. And of course, there are there are certain applications that require a slag uh, for its uh, low curing heat uh, properties, and we really ought to be using the slag for that. So I think the additionality and the fact that you can apply your technology to uh, other materials is really uh, important. And the other thing, though, that you, you also brought out there is the fact that the materials may be different in different places. And we see with, for example, some of the work that's being done on uh, geopolymer concretes that uh, co companies are, are and uh, technologies are being developed uh, to use different materials in different places. Uh, often these are uh, mine tailings or old um, stockpiles of slag and, and fly ash and so forth. So there's, um, I think, a greater interest in using local materials, which obviously uh, help reduce logistics costs and, and the carbon associated with that. So I think uh, in, in uh, bringing those two issues together, that, that's a very interesting contribution that you're, you're making to the overall mix of solutions that we have. Can you give a little bit of a, an idea in terms of how much carbon reduction uh, your technology is, is able to deliver? So I think you've got one portion of it, which is the direct sequestration into the materials, and then another portion of it, which is the replacement of, of cement in, in the concrete mix. So can you can you sort of quantify that for us and explain how that works? Absolutely. So talking about the sequestration piece first, Ian, as you would appreciate, really that's is much a function of the process as it is the chemistry, but ultimately the the ingredients that you're served with, you know, in in uh, whatever constituents of feedstock you're exploring, are are principally the most important factor in how much CO2 you can sequester. So a huge amount of our work within the Western Canadian frame has been with class F fly ash, which is in in Europe called the siliceous fly ash. You know, it's silica rich with free lime or, or calcium oxide content, at least as per XRF, characterization of less than 6%. In many cases, like in Alberta, it's less than 4%. So uh, what ends up happening there is that no matter how efficient you are with your carbonation process, wet or dry, you, you're only able to get up to about 20, 30, 40% of that. So meaning, you know, on a per ton basis, if you hit 10 or 15 kilos of CO2 sequestered per ton, that's actually not that bad. That's almost, you know, 30, 40% of the theoretical maximum. And when you take into account all the other things that are fighting you, like the, the different heavy metals that get in the way of that of the kinetics of that carbonation, etc., or the crystal structure, uh, which is not really much of an issue with fly ash, but can be an issue with slags as an example, it can all get in the way. So, you know, that would be an extreme example on the low end of 1%, 10% or, or 1 to 1.5%, sorry, of uptake that you might be able to get. On the higher end of the spectrum, you'd have materials like slags or, you know, bypass dust or kiln dust, uh, where you can easily get 100 to 250 kilos of CO2 sequestered per ton. And so, you know, obviously we have some work we can't really talk about that we're doing with one of your groups, but there there are some interesting angles there around actually getting a direct sequestration number, which is material. 
because, you know, if you're in the one to two percent range, it really doesn't change much. You know, there was an announcement we saw by one of the, the big admixture companies in Europe recently where they were taking concrete fines and I think getting about 15 or 20 kilos of CO2 per ton of final product. And it, it's an interesting statement because, you know, as, as marginal as it sounds, I do have to commend them to say that, like, we know through the four years of work we've done that that is still not straightforward. I mean, 2% sounds like a very low number and it is. Uh, admittedly, objectively. But given the constraints that you have, we know how hard we had to work with slags as an example to get that number from 3-4% at the beginning to the 14-15% or 140 to 150 kilos per ton that we can do now. Like it, it did not come easily. But to your point, that is one element of our carbon abatement slash kind of the whole carbon life cycle story. The second element is the abatement, which is the direct substitution of that clinker that we're able to achieve by increasing the reactivity of the final product. And, you know, whether it be class F fly ash or even, you know, a couple of slags that we've tested, we've been able to show that we can do a 20% displacement of the clinker. So, you know, we've done baseline tests with OPC, we've done it with GUL cement or PLC cement, and in each case, been able to show at least a 20% substitution without compromising on the seven day and the 28 day strength of that material. In the case of fly ash, we've been able to do multiple rounds of long-term durability testing as well. And no surprise to, to someone like you who's been in the field, but for people watching that might not understand, but you know, the more clinker you reduce generally tends to have a better impact on durability and, and resilience as well. And so expectedly, we saw our RCP numbers generally improve. Uh, so the rapid chloride permeability, the rebar protection work, as well as some of the other durability factors that play into climate adaptation and resilience. And so overall, I would say even for materials that have high CO2 sequestration potential, like let's say for a slag, what we generally find is that the abatement or the clinker substitution element tends to be four times bigger as a factor on a life cycle basis compared to the sequestration component. So even if we sequester 150 kilos of CO2 into the slag, when that slag replaces the clinker by 20% in your ton of cement, that 20% displacement is four times more valuable in your LCA than the, the 100 kilos of CO2 that went in. And ultimately that boils down to just, you know, the math of how concrete, uh, how much cement is in the concrete and the the high embodied carbon footprint of making clinker. And so, yeah, it, it's fairly complicated. And, and that number for a high uptake material like slag would be four to one. In the case of a low uptake material, like a, a siliceous fly ash would be five to one. So it really, you know, even though the sequestration numbers are, you know, 10 kilos versus 150 kilos, the overall life cycle analysis of the carbon footprint, you know, if you were to adopt our technology would only tweak, you know, or move 20% between the two materials, which we found to be quite insightful. And ultimately, again, just talks about how much inherent emission is just built into making clinker and why that's so valuable with any new material you put in. What have you found in terms of the impact of particle size on performance? Is there something that you can do on the particle size of, of different materials that, that has a big impact on the cementitious performance? of the of the end product yeah it's an excellent question and obviously we've been now grinding materials for nine years and uh, we still learn a lot every time you know we talk to folks that, that have been doing it for way longer than us uh, I think Generally speaking, what I would say is it is material specific. By and large, the expectation, quite rightly, is that the smaller your particle size, the better your reactivity. With many 
materials that can have trade-offs as well. And again, this is not across the board, but for many materials, if you grind finer, the workability and the water demand can become an issue. And so, you know, it's hard to draw general rules, but what I would say uh, as as kind of two maybe high-level statements is number one, uh, the type of grinding really matters. Not all grinding is the same. So you could get to the same particle size with two different grinding techniques, but if your surface area, your morphology, your characterization of, of amorphous versus crystalline content, if these things are not exactly identical, which they'll never be for two different mills, I mean, at least to our limited knowledge so far, that can make a big difference. And so it's not just the size, it's also the the type of you know particulate that you make at the end. And the second thing I would say is that by and large, it also depends on the mode in which the material actually supports cementitious reactivity. So you know, in our case, one of the, I guess, more technical pieces, I suppose, is that even though we're carbonating the material, you know, un, you know, let's say if you were to compare us against a company that creates carbonate-based cements, right? And I won't name any, but we, obviously you and I know a few. But if you're making carbonate-based kind of strength, if, the, if your strength in that final product is coming from carbonates, you, you know, you'll sequester more CO2 because you're trying to drive the carbonation. The more carbonation you drive, the stronger your material. And, you know, that can potentially come with other drawbacks like those, you know, it creates its own set of kind of uh, contexts. In our case, we carbonate the material and then still have the material participate in hydration chemistry like normal cement. And what that really means is that's why it allows for that compatibility where, you know, this can be used as an SCM as opposed to an alternative cement. And, you know, one way to look at it would be to say, well, this is not disruptive enough. Like if you really want to change cement, you know, make it all new carbonates and stuff, right? Like completely change the paradigm of how we make cement. And I guess to an extent, we're kind of more boring than that. And we're we're trying to look at how do we just stick to the hydration chemistry and improve it with a material that has already become a carbon sink. And I would say that the reason I'm saying all of this, and I apologize for being so long-winded in all my answers, but I would say that if you have a material that's only helping because of fine particle size, it's probably not contributing to hydration much to begin with. It's probably just doing a kind of a nucleating effect uh, and a filler effect. And, you know, of course, with very fine limestone and very fine silica and stuff like people see that. And so that could happen uh, with those materials. There's no doubt the more particle size reduction, the better. If you have a material that then hydrates, you know, and it does it hydrate like a slag, like a GDPS, or does it hydrate like a an alkali rich material like Portland cement again size can either help or, or hurt and it becomes more nuanced but I would say definitely for inert materials or materials that have very low reactivity to begin with just because of their chemistry size helps a lot okay so if we look look forward to um the next few years I mean how, how do you see carbon upcycling developing over the next two or three years you know I, I would say in uh, I guess at a philosophical level the mission that carbon upcycling has is to be the most impactful carbon tech company of this decade and by that you know obviously there's a bunch of that we can internalize but we understand that there are going to be externalities and if you know one of the big premises of our work is there are other companies looking at slags uh there are some of them that are looking at slags in you know much further downstream than us there are some that are looking upstream like looking at adopting that into the meal for, you know, what you feed into a kiln. We're looking at the wedge where you can fundamentally decouple the production of a cementitious material from using fossil fuels or high, you know, needing high temperatures. Our thinking is, yes, there will be more technologies over time to electrically make heat and, and things like that. And that will happen. But our view overall is that unless you get away from the need to have things bake at 1400 degrees C, it is going to be fundamentally you know, a challenge for the over 3000 cement plants in the world to really, really decarbonize. And so 
our premise of mechanochemically activating materials and decoupling production of cementitious materials from calcination is a big premise of ours. And our thinking is that for a couple of these families of materials, we definitely want to help our partners, both the ones now and hopefully more in the future, to, to start taking this route and work with us so that it's a win-win. Overall, you know, if our impact comes because by five years from now, people start adopting this methodology generally and start, start changing how they do, do these things, we still consider that to be impact that was catalyzed by us. And so I would say, generally speaking, if we can make that decoupling happen, and I think to, to the point that you made earlier, really drive home that value prop of like taking someone else's waste to make, you know, a good feedstock. Uh, that chemically and performance-wise can work for cement, that's really, really important. Because so far, from everything we hear since the 80s, when SCMs really began to get used in, in mainstream construction, there hasn't really been a, a time like now where you know people are worried about paying more for GGBS than they've paid for cement or paying more for fly ash than they paid for cement. And so, you know, when you couple that with the fact that we not only are shutting down the things that make these materials, like, you know, blast furnaces are becoming more scrutinized, coal power plants are shutting down. And so that's creating a squeeze right at the wrong time for when we need these SEMs the most. And so if we can somehow, you know, uh, facilitate the adoption of these other waste materials, to lower that and still allow for clinker substitution to happen meaningfully to us, you know, to whatever impact we can play in, in driving that and, and speeding that up would be would be a massive win. So, so one of the uh, material families that must be interesting are clays. And uh, of course, we, we know that calcination of clays can make uh, quite effective cementitious materials, but you've also been looking at mechanical activation. And obviously, mechanical activation has a number of advantages uh, in, in terms of energy, in terms of carbon footprint, and, and indeed, in terms of permitting, when you when you look at permitting new plants. Is, is that an area that you see a lot of potential in? Yeah, this might be one of the few answers where I'm, I'm quite cagey and, and don't give you a long answer. But yes, the short answer is absolutely see a lot of potential. And yeah, I think it's an area that we're definitely quite focused on in our R&D efforts. Okay, well, Excellent. I think that's a you know a really interesting area for the future, and maybe a, a good point for us to uh, uh, bring the conversation to a close. So, Apov, thanks so much for talking to me today. It's been a pleasure. Likewise, Ian. As always, great great to talk to you again. Thanks for listening to the Clinker Factor podcast today. If you've enjoyed it, do subscribe and please recommend us to friends and colleagues and anyone else who you think would be interested in what's happening in the cement and concrete industry around the world. WCA is a not-for-profit company. Please visit our website to see the services that we offer 